You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. So let's talk about evil this morning. That word evil evokes some thoughts and probably feelings in all of us when we say it or hear it. Thinking about what is evil. Maybe stuff comes to mind like cancer, sexual abuse, genocide, famine, and on and on and on I could go but we all feel like we can recognize when something is evil in this life. And if we do, we know that our proper response to whatever is evil is to actually hate it. God says, we said last week, God says that we are to abhor evil. Yes, that means hate, to loathe, to despise what is evil. And there's no question, absolutely no doubt, that we live in a world that is full of evil. It surrounds us and we see it and, we, and maybe we, we feel it and sense it all the time. And to argue the presence and the detrimental effects of evil in our world today, it, it would be the height of ignorance or denial or an actual moral subjectivity that I would have to define as evil in and of itself. There's evil around us all the time. So when we see it, when we sense it, when we feel it, maybe when we experience it face to face, we are to, the scripture says, to abhor evil. But my question today, what I want to talk about today, is that all? Is the only thing that I'm required to do as a believer is to hate evil, to acknowledge that it exists and say, yes, that's bad, yes, that's wrong, yes, that, sh- that, that shouldn't happen? Or is there more required of us as the church. Between the years of 1940 and 1944, Nazi Germany had taken over possession and occupied northern France. Southern France was still unoccupied at that time and a part of the resistance. When there was a Protestant village in southern France known as Le Chambon, The little village of about 5,000 people decided collectively that something evil was taking place in the world around them, in the persecution of a particular group of people, the Jews, and they decided that something had to be done about it. The pastor of that village, his name was Andre, Trochme was his last name, and he was said to have pulled the entire village together. He was the village pastor, so he pulled everybody together and he exhorted them this way, we will resist when our enemies demand that we act in ways that go against the teachings of the gospel. We will resist without fear, without pride, and without hatred. This little village then went on to double in its size providing refuge for over 5,000 people 
3,500 which were Jews fleeing Nazi persecution. And the values of this village were perhaps expressed best by its pastor every single Sunday who concluded his sermons with these words. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Go practice it. Every Sunday, they'd hear these words. So for these French Christians, if you will, their desire to see other people made in the image of God, they chose to protect the fellow people of God regardless of their religious background, regardless of their ethnicity. Or as the pastor's wife put it, sometimes people ask me, how did you make such a decision? She said, there was no decision to make. The issue was, do you think we are all brothers and sisters or not? Do you think people are made in the image of God or not? Do you think it is unjust to turn in the Jews or not? Then let us try to help. So help they did for four years at great expense and danger to themselves. As a matter of fact, Pastor Andre had to go into hiding so that he would not be captured at some point. This was their collective response to evil. It wasn't just a strong hatred. It wasn't just a strong dislike. It wasn't, well, that's a terrible thing they're doing to those people. No, they got involved and they began to do what the Apostle Paul tells us in the passage that we'll read today that echoes the words of Jesus on the Sermon of the Mount. How do we respond to evil? We don't just hate it. We don't just acknowledge it. We overcome it. And we check out the reality of what the Bible says to know how we overcome it. I want you to see this picture of this church that I was just mentioning. Pastor Andre was the pastor of. It's still there today. It's called the temple. Leah Lane is the person that took the picture. And I was gonna, I was gonna read that in French, but I don't wanna uh, embarrass all of you and impress you too much this morning. So um, it's love one another. Now, I, I could do it. I did used to sing in French, so I could probably do it, but it's been a while. Love one another over the doorpost of the church. Love one another with a genuine love that overcomes evil. This is what Paul's encouraged us to do. We're going to continue in our series, My People, because I just can't stop talking about how amazing I think you are as my people and, and how glad I am that you're my people. But also, I really want to continue to encourage us that we could continue to grow in being the people of God to an even greater extent, that we would follow the pattern and the plan of God's word as God's people. That we're not just his people here to do nothing, but there is a plan and a pattern that he has for us to live by so that we can dwell in his presence and export his presence to one another. Why are we one another's people? Because God made us his people, and because we are his people, we are now one another's people, brothers and sisters in Christ. We've said it this way, you are my people because we are God's people. So you're my people, and I am your people. And the reality is, is we are to, as last week said, Romans 12, 9, to let love be without hypocrisy. So I want to start today in Romans 12 again. We've been here already, right? So if you've been here the last few weeks, you kind of know how to get there. It's right after Acts. So go to Acts, take a right, and you'll find Romans. And what we're going to do is start in chapter 12 again. Verse 9, we've gone through, 10 through 13 last week, and we're going to go all the way through verse 21 today and finish this chapter. Verse 9 started with, let love be without hypocrisy. 
abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So what I want you to understand today is everything that we're going to talk about, every exhortation that follows in verses 10 through 21, these rapid fire exhortations that the apostle Paul is giving is coming out of a heart of love. The motive of the heart is love. Just like Kiva talked about a moment ago, the the motive of giving is love for God. The motive of all of this is love. So I want to settle that so that we don't think that we're doing good things to get on God's good side because that's not possible. This is settled by the fact that God is good and Jesus has made a way for us to be in a relationship with him. But we do these good things because God loves us and we love him and that's our response. So let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. This is the heart everything's coming out of. A heart of genuine love that hates what is evil and that is clinging to, is welded to, that's what that word means, is welded to with heat and with fire and trials and all the things we go through, is clinging to good. And what we're gonna find today is that when you're welded to good, you will actually do good. That the Christian life is not clinging to an ideal. The Christian life is not clinging to a feeling. It's to quote one of my favorite bands from the 70s and 80s, it's more than a feeling. dated yourself when you laughed I guess or that you liked Boston back in the day or whatever but it's not just clinging to an idea it's not just clinging to these good thoughts it's not just clinging to a philosophy it's clinging to a way of life we are welded Paul says to a way of life that is marked by what actions that prove our love for God and for other people and when we do this Paul says this is a way of life that is proving that you can overcome evil. You can be an overcomer. This is the way of life of an overcomer. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus who said what? Take heart, I have overcome the world. And I would just have to say that a lot of times the reason we're not so sure about being overcomers is because our idea of overcoming and Paul's idea of overcoming and Jesus' idea of overcoming is a little bit different. We think overcoming is just always being victorious, always being the strongest, always being on top, number one. I'm overcoming, I'm an overcomer. The description of how Paul overcomes, the description of how Jesus overcomes, the description of how the historic church overcomes is a little bit different than hashtag winning in life. So we go to verse 21 and we see a clear explanation of how we overcome. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in order for this to be true, uh, this is God's description of what is good. So I want to read this in context this morning, and then I'll come back and focus in on verse 21 today. But I want to read 14 through 21, remembering that everything since verse 9, really everything since Romans 12, 1, when we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice unto God, or Romans 12, 2, that we're not conformed to the pattern of this world, but we're conformed now, transformed by the renewing of our minds. All of this is setting the table for the rest of this chapter. And so that's what we're going to read, demonstrating what genuine love looks like, or an unhypocritical love to both fellow believers and unbelievers. Paul's kind of switching back and forth. This is how you treat unbelievers. This is how you treat fellow believers. You basically treat people all with genuine love, clinging to what is good. And then he picks up in verse 14, kind of speaking to how we would treat an unbeliever. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. 
Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, I want to focus in on verse 21, and I want to point out that I believe the preceding verses that are numerous are examples of what doing good does and doesn't look like. Now, I don't have time to go into how we could do all of those. It would be wonderful to do that. Maybe we'll do that one day. But right now, I want to focus in on 21. But as a, uh, at least a nod to those verses, here's what it looks like. If we curse others, verse 14. If we repay evil for evil, verse 17. Or if we take revenge, that's verse 19. Then because all these are evil responses to evil, we've given in to evil. We've been sucked into the spiral of its sphere of influence. If if you will, and we've been defeated, overcome, overpowered by evil ourselves. But if we refuse to retaliate, we can instead take the offensive and practice the Christ-like counterpart to revenge, which is what? If we bless our persecutors, verse 14, if we ensure that we ourselves are seen to be doing good, verse 17, if we are active in peacemaking, verse 18, if we leave all judgment to God, verse 19, and if we love and serve our enemy, even win him over to a better renewed mind, verse 20, then in these ways we will overcome evil with good. So let's get back to verse 21. Because the word good here, overcome evil with good, is the same word used in verse 9 when Paul says cling to what is good. That's the same word. So we're clinging to and we're also overcoming with this same good. We're clinging to it and also what we're overcoming evil with. You don't overcome evil with evil. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of his most famous quotes is, hate cannot drive out hate. You cannot overcome evil with evil. So our objective good is the only way to overcome objective evil. Why do I say objective? Because it's not what you and I define as evil as good. It's what God defines as evil and what is good. So what God says is good is what can overcome what God says is evil. But if we're honest, we really don't like that all the time. Why? Because it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. If I've been hurt, Man, I deserve to hurt you back. If you said something to me, well, then you're going to get it from me. Oh, no, no, no. She, she, nope, nope. She came calling at the wrong house. Whatever it is that we're thinking, we're going to fight fire with fire. That's our natural response. Because why? Because that's what they deserve. But aren't you glad? that you and I do not get what we deserve. That we get mercy and we get grace and we're really good with that when it's for us. It's when it's somebody else's turn that we oftentimes have the difficulty. See, instead of what someone deserves, Paul's saying we do what is good and doing good is supposed to be the people of God's thing. I mean, that's kind of supposed to be our thing, isn't it? We do good. 
All throughout Scripture, it's the people of God's thing. You can go through Amos in, in the New Testament and Old Testament. No matter where you go, you can see God saying, do what is good. As a matter of fact, in the book of Amos, God wanted the people of Israel to turn away from their corrupt behavior. And in Amos 5.14, he said, do what is good. And if they would go against the prevailing corruption by hating evil behavior and clinging to what is good and righteous, which meant their actions, they would defend justice instead of trampling on it. And the Lord would stand by them as their defender rather than their judge. How many of you would rather have God standing beside you as your defender rather than your judge? And this is happening by doing good, Paul says. Yes, yeah, okay to applaud that. I mean, I'm like, yes, yes, please. I want to have God as my defender. Today, doing good deeds is also not just the people of God's. It's supposed to be the church's thing. Like, when people think of the church... When people think of us, God's people, my people, they should be thinking about people that do good things. Not to get on right, God's good side. I think we've, I've already tried to establish that. The reasoning isn't to get on God's good side. We're not doing good just to be seen and just to be heard and just to be a better, feel better about ourselves. We are doing good because it flows out of a heart of genuine love towards God that is clinging to it. It's just the natural outflow of a heart that is clinging to God. And so we do this, and we do what is good, and we hate what is evil. And we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, who is known as the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. John 10 says his life and death are the ultimate examples of what it means to put genuine sacrificial love into action through good works. Titus 2.14, I love this verse. You don't have to turn there, but it says, Jesus gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. We're totally committed to doing good deeds. And by doing those good deeds and showing kindness and sacrificial love to others, we prove that we're children of God. Scripture upholds that as well. Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. 3 John 1, 11. Or for God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. Here's your example, and you must follow in his steps. 1 Peter 2, 21. This is where I'm saying that a lot of times we think about being overcomers, and we don't think about the fact that overcoming might mean suffering. If you're going to overcome, then it says, then do good even if it means suffering. Wait a minute, God. I mean, if I do good, I shouldn't have to suffer. Just as Christ suffered for you. He's your example. You must follow in his steps well, wait a minute now I thought you know just doing good I just kind of want to I don't want anybody to know I'd, I think that's too prideful when people see me listen the idea of being seen doing good or evil is an important context to note in this particular time in this particular culture which Jesus was speaking into which Paul was speaking into as an honor and shame culture not just a right and wrong culture it was a collectivist culture not just an individualistic culture of what I'm doing right or wrong it's about what we do the family the people the village what are we going to do it's very different than our modern context in view of honor and shame something really here watch this something really wasn't all that good 
then unless people saw it and noticed it. Unless, it's that whole idea, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it actually make a noise? I mean, if we take that here, it's like, if something good is done and nobody sees it, in this culture, it didn't really matter. That's why Jesus is saying, make sure they see your good works and give glory to God. Isn't that what he said in Matthew 5? In the same way, let your light shine before others. Don't hide it under a bushel. No. Right, that's for all you people that grew up going to VBS or something. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Kingdom works produce a kingdom witness. Or we could say it this way this morning. Good works produce a good witness that is coming from a, what, genuine heart of love. Not a heart to be seen. Not a heart to be patted on the back. Not a heart to be noticed just to be noticed. But a heart to give glory to God. At some point, we have to understand this is who Jesus was speaking to, this is Paul speaking to, and this is how it applies to us. Because at the same time, people avoided doing evil, not primarily because they felt guilty or they were concerned about right or wrong, but because they didn't want to be shamed in front of others. They were concerned about other people seeing them. This is probably why the mythical ring of Gyges was created by Plato, right? It was considered the one temptation that nobody could resist. The ring once put on would make the wearer invisible so that you could do whatever you wished without anyone seeing or knowing. What it was saying was, I don't feel bad about it if nobody sees. The whole idea of you are who you really are when no one else is around. This is where H.G. Wells got his idea and wrote The Invisible Man. This is where J.R.L. Tolkien, most people say, got his idea of doing the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. That I could be invisible and do whatever I want. But yet that corrupts me because all these stories suggest that humans do right only when people are watching. But for the Christian, that cannot be the motivation for somebody doing good and not doing evil. Again, it is genuine love that abhors evil and is clinging to good that overcomes evil by doing good that people see. This was the cultural concept in honor and shame culture. People are more likely to choose what is right because of what society expects of them rather than because they feel guilty. And in an honor and shame culture like Paul is talking to, shame wasn't a bad thing. Shame was not a negative thing. Shaming is. See, I think sometimes we have done a disservice to how God wants to convict our hearts because we've often said, and maybe you've never heard this, but if you grew up in church like I did and been in certain places and certain denominations, you've probably heard this, that guilt is from God and shame is from the devil. I'm not sure that's what Scripture teaches because if I look at this and I understand that shaming is wrong, but shame means you know the proper way to behave. Shame means that you have a sense of shame. If you didn't, you'd know that phrase. You have no shame. They have no shame because they don't know how to respond. Or in the words of you know, the, the famous theologian Garth Brooks, you would be shameless. Shame is why the Jewish officials killed Jesus in the first place. It wasn't because he was healing people and doing good things and doing nice things. It's because he kept publicly shaming them because they were trying to catch him and shame him. And every time they do that and ask these questions, trying to get honor publicly for themselves, he would be the one that would get honor and they were the ones that would receive shame. And it ticked them off, publicly shaming them. 
Why do you think Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, Christ scorned the shame of the cross? What's the shame of the cross? Part of it is the public criminality of saying this is a criminal, this is a sinner, this is a person that is awful and terrible, publicly declaring it right out there as you came into town and went out of town. Everybody publicly would see the shame on those hanging on the cross. And for that, he scorned that shame for the joy set before him. And we look at Colossians 2, because that's not what all he did. We read there was also a public shaming because of the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What was publicly done to shame him was then turned on its head, and he publicly put the authorities and the rulers all to public shame as the cross won victory over hell. An instrument of shame became an instrument of victory. So you're doing these things, these visible good works, overcoming evil with good. And the previous verse says, by so doing, you are heaping burning coals on your enemy's head. Now, there's some debate about to exactly what this represents, but they're, they're, the heart behind it is the same. Because again, I think we misinterpret this oftentimes, and here's our version of this verse. If I'll do this good to them, then I could heap some burning coals on their head. Oh, yes. And they could just burn. I mean, okay, am I the only one that's ever felt that way? You read that scripture and thought, I gotta do good. And then you get to that end, it's like, oh yeah, I could heat burning coals on them. Yeah. <laughs> Problem is, is that's not exactly what that means at all. Because heaping burning coals was actually repaying evil with good. Heaping these coals of fire, if you will, were intended to heal, not hurt, to win, not to alienate. In fact, to shame that person into repentance. And that's where we have a struggle, right? Because we're like, oh, is that even possible? The reason we would want to shame an enemy into repentance is because the Holy Spirit uses both inner conviction, which would be a sense of guilt, and also uses external conviction, which would be a sense of shame. He works effectively through them both to draw us to himself so that we can receive forgiveness in our time of help and need. And here it is. If you struggle with this idea, then think about it this way. An external conviction, which would be a sense of shame is better than an eternal eviction which would be separated from God for eternity I'd rather be externally convicted than eternally evicted the goal of the gentle reaction or the kind response or the heaping coals is so that the enemy is not embarrassed doesn't get the last word for you but it helps facilitate repentance in the evildoer that's probably where we kick into our Job mentality, right? I don't want them to receive forgiveness. I want them to get what's coming to them. But no, God says, nope. This actually happened in King David's case. Instead of a voice whispering to his heart, which would be private conviction, he got a prophet who shouted at his face, which was public shame. God can speak either way. But in this culture, he spoke this way because that's what they responded to. That's why when the prophet said, you are that man, all of a sudden what he had every right to do as a king, that's why he didn't feel bad about it. He was king. He could do that. And publicly, there was no shame in it because he was king. So that's why he said, no, you're this man. And then that's why he said, against you alone, God, have I sinned. Didn't mean he didn't do bad things to Bathsheba and Uriah and the whole, but nobody, because of his position, that culture said, it's okay. But this is where God's different. God says certain things the culture says is okay, it's not okay. 
And that's where we have to go to him to define what is good and what is evil. So back to our text, verse 21, it gives us this choice between two things with an exhortation to what? To choose between the better one. Paul's saying you either are overcome by evil or you overcome evil yourself. One or two, you can't ignore evil, you can be assured evil's not gonna ignore you, but you fight to choose, and in this battle, you're either the conqueror, the conqueror, or the conquered. That's who you are. The apostle Paul is telling us to conquer evil, but it's never as easy as it sounds. And I think that's what I'm pointing out, that inherently we know we don't have to train ourselves to return evil for evil. It's natural to repay evil for evil, but do we want God to repay evil for evil? No. We want mercy, and I know it's hard, but those that have received mercy must extend mercy, and the art of returning evil is easy. Anybody can do that. I mean, when you're driving down the road and somebody flicks you off, anybody can flick them back off. That's our natural response. No, don't do it. I mean, what if you were to drive up to the next red light and catch them, roll down your window and say, hey, I just got a gift card I want to say, give you, and, and God bless you. You literally would cause a massive car pileup because people, you'd just be shocked. We expect to repay evil with evil. If somebody says something to us, we like, I've got the right to say something back. Taking vengeance and standing up for your rights is not something you need divine enablement for. Returning evil for evil won't require any godly attributes. Prayer and humility won't be needed. You won't need any faith because you've taken matters into your own hands to do it your way and to say what you want to say. Settling your own score publicly if necessary. Gentleness, meekness, forbearance, forgiveness, you won't need any of those because you will have turned into your old animalistic nature trading evil for evil and here's what i mean good for evil is godlike good for good jesus said is human like what good is it that you do good for those who do good for you even sinners do that he said that evil for good is devil but evil for evil that's what animals do you bite me i'll bite you you gore me i'll gore you in 2006 32-year-old Charles Roberts stormed into a one-room schoolhouse in the Amish community of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, and he shot 10 girls, killing five before turning the gun on himself. Despite enormous shock and grief, several of the victim's family members appeared at the killer's funeral just days later. When Robert's grieving mother announced that she had plans to leave the community, relatives of the dead victims persuaded her to stay. Seven years later, CBS News reported that the elder Roberts had become the primary caregiver for a girl her son had wounded in the attack. Is there anything in this life that we should not forgive, said Roberts. See, we'd be lying to ourselves if we don't think a little bit right there, well, that's fine for them. They're Amish. (laughs) Or, that's fine for them. But if that had been my daughter... I would have been happy to show up and execute justice myself, standing up for myself, defending my cause, vindicating our name. Those are all things that seem noble. The strong should fight fire with fire, force with greater force. That's the mindset we've often defaulted to and agreed with. But to be meek, gentle, patient, kind, 
in those situations, it just seems a little frail. But if that's our line of thinking, I'm pretty sure we would not have liked Jesus. If there's a model for Christian behavior and how to respond to evil with good, Jesus is that model. So let's consider a couple of things. One time Jesus was drawing near to the Samaritan village in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. But what they didn't know was until they got there, the Samaritans did not want to receive Jesus. And all he'd ever done was be good to them. And now they're saying, no, you can't come in here. And so John, little nice, what, gentle John, and then James go, well, Jesus, they're both highly indignant. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. Is that what you want us to do, Jesus? And Jesus meekly answers, yes. Great idea, guys. Make it extra crispy. (laughs) No. He rebuked them, and he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. What about the night that he gets up from the ground from praying and blood and sweat are still mixed, pouring out of his forehead, praying for the people that would betray him. And Judas shows up with the betrayal party and Peter's ticked off. So Peter comes up and he cuts Malchus's ear off. And what does Jesus do? He says, put your, put your knife away. Put your sword back into its place, he said, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Is Jesus soft? Is Jesus naive? Does he just not know how to fight force with force? Or maybe Jesus is somebody that we're supposed to emulate and to be like. Paul is reiterating what Jesus already taught in the Sermon on the Mount, but what he wants us to know in this particular passage, when you fight evil with evil, you've been overcome by evil. You've already lost. You're not an overcomer. And what is worse, when you overcome evil with evil, it's much more damaging to you than it is the person that you're trying to overcome. Because in verse 19, Paul says, let the Lord handle the vengeance part because revenge will only hurt the avenger. And I wonder, I wonder, I was thinking about this this week, I wonder if we delay the work of God in people's hearts and lives sometimes because we've taken matters into our own hands and done it our way. They got what they were deserving. Yeah, but maybe God wanted them to get him. Yeah, I I didn't want them to do that. I was mad. I was angry. So Paul ends this whole chapter with the answer that I've been going over and over again. How do we overcome evil? How are we overcomers in this life? And the answer is, is we overcome evil with good. We overcome evil with good. Wednesday, June 17th, 2015. 12 people were gathered for a Wednesday evening Bible study. But on this particular evening, the Bible study at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina had a new visitor. A 21-year-old self-professed white supremacist whose name was Dylan Roof. Dylan requested and sat down beside the pastor, Reverend Clementa Pinckney, and he took part in the Bible study. 
However, before he left the Bible study that evening, while everybody else had their heads bowed in prayer, he pulled out a 45 caliber handgun and killed nine of the 12 people at the Bible study, the three that survived only doing so by pretending like they were dead. And at his first public appearance after the shooting at his bond hearing, the families of the victims showed up one by one. Those who chose to speak did not turn to anger, but instead, while he remained impassive, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. I forgive you, Nadine Collier, the daughter of 70-year-old Ethel Lance said at the hearing, her voice breaking with emotion. You took something very precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. I will never ever hold her again, but I forgive you and God have mercy on your soul. I forgive you. God have mercy on your soul. What? How? Because it echoes something that we've all been recipients of. Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. This is us doing the impossible work of overcoming evil with good. It's impossible. Why? Because in and of ourselves, that's not what we choose. But with God, all things are possible. And Paul is saying, overcome evil with good and with direct and overt acts of kindness, do it. That is, if anyone has done you wrong, do not only forgive it, but avenge it by doing something good to them. Have you ever gotten angry at somebody and then they just stay really calm while you're really just railing on them? One of two things happens. Like when I was a fathering my now older kids, when I would get mad and they would laugh at me, it just made me more mad. They're like, just dad, you're so funny when you get angry. I'm not trying to be funny right now. So that, that could happen, just make you more angry. Or what the scripture says in Proverbs, that a gentle answer can turn away wrath. And then we could win a brother or sister for Christ. But it takes the fight out of the fight when we do that. The very thing your enemy wants is to make you go down to the level that he's at, the level of anger and hatred. But when you don't fight fire with fire, when you overcome evil with good, it just ticks the enemy off. He's like, why, how? They look just like Jesus when they do that. And I assure you, he cannot insert his poison darts into your heart when you do that. When God preserves you and by his grace you have nothing but good to speak or good actions to do towards the person who hates you and is seeking your ruin, you are being an overcomer, overcoming evil with good. Le Chambon, the Amish families, the families of the Charleston Nine. These incredible responses to objective evil can be described as unbelievable, noble, heroic, or some people might call them naive or unrealistic. But I know what the Bible calls it, the normal Christian response. What the people of God do when faced with evil. I didn't say it was easy, because nothing that is countercultural and good as God says it's good is ever 
easily done, but it was also publicly noticeable. That's why we do these good deeds in front of people. That's why we forgive publicly, if you will. That's why we do the things that God's called us to do. So it's an incredible public spectacle of honor that the people don't know what to do with. And all the stories that I just read, that's probably the thing you hear again. How? Why? How could they do that? I could have never done that. How did you forgive? How did you hide somebody at the expense of your own life? How did you do those things? But these stories, and even stories that you've been involved in, or maybe you're involved in right now, are made possible because Jesus overcame evil with good first through his own countercultural response. Jesus was the perfect example. I'll read the scripture and I'll close. 1 Peter 2.23, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In submitting himself to the evil of his captors, he conquered sin, Satan, hell, and the grave. Evil thought it had won that day when Christ was crucified on the cross. But because Jesus was fully submitted and surrendered to the will and the plan of the Father, the Son of God, overcame their evil with good. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus reminded the Pharisees that Satan cannot drive out Satan. Likewise, evil cannot drive out evil. An evil response doubles the evil. When we respond to evil in humility instead, in grace, we're proving that good triumphs over wickedness. And you can't stop people from doing wicked, evil things. You can't. But they can't force us to participate with them. It takes no power, might, or wisdom to retaliate against an evildoer. But returning good for evil is one of the greatest demonstrations of the strength and the glory of Christ in us. I don't know of anything that helps a blind person spiritually in this world to see the light of the glory of Christ than when people, God's church, decide to overcome evil with good. It's a spectacle that shames evil and exalts the good that Christ has put in us. So church, my hope for you today, no matter what you're going through, situations where you think you deserve to get even or get right, that you would trust God to be the one that is in control of that situation and that you would return evil with good, not multiplying evil in this world, but that we would multiply good in this earth so that people could see our Father in heaven and give honor and glory to him. That's my hope for us as we continue to be those who do good works in the earth. Let's pray. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.